Good morning, Cedars. I want to welcome you uh, to, to worship as we're about to look into the Word of God here this morning, continuing in our sermon series. But obviously it would be remiss to um, maybe not deal with, to deal with the elephant in the room. Right? We know this last week has been hard. Uh, as you came to worship last week, many of you came to an element um, that you weren't expecting, an element that has been difficult. And I know that it is difficult. It's been difficult for me, for the staff, for the leadership. Um, but that's the reality that we're in. And Jeff is in a situation that, in a season that led to the decision that had to be made. And it is right for Jeff and for his family. Even though we may not like it. So maybe this week has been odd. You're trying to find the feeling that you're feeling, the word that encapsulates all of that. I've been trying to do that. Um, one word that it's come has been alone or lonely. And it's not just what we're facing as a church and as the body of Christ called cedars. Right now we're, we're facing this in, in it's still even a larger issue that's been going on with the pandemic and the riots and, and the social unrest. Right, I guess maybe um, we're looking for a place and a season of peace and not finding that yet. But instead of maybe feeling like we're taking steps towards it, it seems like we keep walking further away from it. And so that's where we find ourselves. It was interesting as I walked in this morning and coming through the lobby um, into the sanctuary. Um, it's going to sound odd, but you know what I missed this morning? I mean, I missed you being here and this being Sunday, not Saturday. But I missed the pink box. You know the pink box. The pink box that people bring to the church and put in the lobby that that have donuts in them, right? Sometimes you just see that pink box and you know, well, something good is coming. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had a donut or two since we have last met. But I guess maybe that's the visual that struck me this morning is, God, what I wouldn't give for the pink box. Normalcy. Comfort. The things that we would gravitate to, to return. Familiar. Unchanging. Foundation. Now, it maybe sounds funny to think of a donut as foundation, but for some of us, it is a food group. But those things that we can count on, the taste of the chocolate, the moist, doughy bread that tastes good, especially if it was warm. You know, I think about that too when I'm more in a spiritual mood. What helps for me is to come to, to, come to worship in the Word of God. Because regardless of what I'm going through, if I come with authenticity to the Word of God and with worship, and God works on my heart. So that's where we're coming today. We're going to come into a time of spending time in the word and worship. Singing, praying, communion. 
And my prayer for you, for me, for us, is that as we meet with God, he'll continue that heart work that we're so desperate for. So with that, let's pray. And then we're going to jump into the word and we're going to worship the God who is unchanging, who was and is and is to come. Pray with me. Father, we do. We know you are the ancient of days. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that sameness is built and and found in your character. Your character that is with us, that is for us, that loves us, that forgives us, that redeems us, that challenges us, that even disciplines and judges for your name and your kingdom's sake. But we know that everything you do and the seasons of life you allow are beautiful in their time and they're for us to revere or fear you. And God, we confess sometimes we, I, don't like the way you do it. (laughs) But who am I, the, the clay, to argue with the potter? And so, Lord, before my family, friends, and this community, again, I say, here I am, mold me. And with that, I have to surrender. It's so hard to surrender. But I know who it is I surrender to. So use me. Use me in this next moment of preaching. Use us, your church, to mold us together, to be who you've called us to be, equipped, reaching our inner circles, Reproducing house churches and micro communities that draw people into the kingdom of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we are uh, moving into or continuing in with the sermon series in uh, 1 Peter. We're going to look at the next segment, um, taking um, the next steps for where Ray left off last week. And... uh, as I looked at this this week and just saw what was coming ahead, the reality of the scripture is suffering. Suffering for being Christians. Right? And we've talked through that. We've talked from the very beginning that, that as Peter writes this, right, he writes this as we've been calling the elect in exile. That God chose people out of this world into the kingdom of God in a series or a, a condition or a culture of exile, of being um, representatives of of his, not at home. And it's difficult. And we've been walking through that. With that lens or that framing, we've been walking through this letter that Peter wrote to these people to encourage them and to challenge them. But know this, you are the elect, the chosen of God in exile, As Paul might say, you're ambassadors sent to a foreign land. And that's what we're looking at today. This next segment that we'll be walking through out of 1 Peter. The elect in exile. And so again, we're going to pick up from where Ray left off last week. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 now. The end of this chapter, 12 through 19. And Peter starts off this section saying this, Dear friends, 
right? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? He's been talking about this idea of suffering um, earlier in, the, in this letter. But as he comes to him, he says, hey, dear friends, people that I love, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal you go through. As if something strange were happening to you. He's been saying all along, hey, no, this is the norm for people who are Christ followers. To suffer. To be challenged, to have difficult times put on them because they bear the name of Jesus. Right? A lot of what we're looking at today actually connects into uh, what I preached on two weeks ago, not knowing I was preaching this today. But he says it's a fiery ordeal, this idea of fire. Right? Fire purifies. It refines. And that's part of what the language Peter is using. That as you go through these fiery ordeals, these refining moments, these purifying opportunities, don't think it's strange. It should be expected. It should be the norm. So as you go through this, don't try to fight what, is, what God is doing in and through your lives. It's the norm. And again, I think about what I talked about two weeks ago, that on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, hey, the world is going to hate you, but know this, it hated me first. And he lived in the midst of that hatred, that opposition, those fiery ordeals. And so he reminded his disciples, he reminded the apostles This is the reality. Now here we have one of those 12 reminding that first generation of the church. And then we have that first generation reminding the second generation and the third and so on and so on and so on till today. But these words are the same words that Jesus spoke in that upper room and on the way, I believe, to the garden. That This is normative for people who bear the name of Jesus. And oh, by the way, it started with me, the person named Jesus, he would say to them. So don't think it's strange. You may not like it, but it's not strange. And he goes on in his letter, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Right? So this, this mix here that, that as we participate in his suffering, right? The bad stuff, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff, that with that is going to come the great stuff, the good stuff, the glory of God when it's revealed. And this is future tense. That as you go through current participation in suffering, know that there is a hope. There is a glory that awaits you that is well worth it. It's beyond your understanding. And so maybe that helps to frame our our acceptance of what we go through. That as we participate in the sufferings like Christ suffered, we know that there is a future glory that is going to come. And it's awesome. It's incredible. 
but yet it, it comes with a cost. Not a cost we pay for our salvation, but a cost that we pay, if you will, because of his salvation. That in as much as we participate in the suffering, we will be overjoyed. We will rejoice. We will have joy when his kingdom comes in its fullness. But he says, as you live elect in exile, there will be suffering. And and it's interesting. I I don't know that this story fully fits, but when I was a kid, we had this little uh, scholastic school book it was, or whatever that brand was way back in the day. But it was the story of the little red hen, right? And this is so American culture. Right? If you know this story, right, there's this, there's this red hen that finds these, these wheat seeds. And she asks the other farm animals, hey, will you, will you help me plant it? And they all say no. So she does the hard work of planting it. And then it grows, right? And she says, hey, farm animals, will you, will you help me reap this? And they're like, no. And then she does it. And then, hey, farm animals, will you help me like grind it into to flour so we can bake it? No. And so, hey, I'll do it myself, right? And then she does that, all that work. And then she comes out with this awesome bread. She's like, hey, would you like some of this bread? And they're like, yeah. She's like, no, you didn't do the hard work. (laughs) Why should you get the bread, the benefit of it? Now, I know that that might not be exactly what Peter's writing here. But again, I don't know why, but I just couldn't get that story out of my head when I went through it, when I went through my studies. That there, there's hard work to be done. Don't, don't mince the, the words on it. It is hard work. There is suffering. There is a price we pay for the name that we assume when we come into the family of God. But it's well worth the fresh baked bread, the donut from the pink box. Glory. The glory of the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. So rejoice. Participate in the suffering. Because if you understood the glory that is to come, it would pale in comparison. I suppose it'd be maybe like the women in our community that have had children. (laughs) The pain right? I know the pain of the squeezed hand pales in comparison as to what Diana went through. But the joy, the joy, we participate in the pain because we know the joy that is to come, the glory that is to come. You know, I I think about Peter, right? He, uh, He knew what he was talking about. Right? These weren't just some theoretical words that he was saying from not experiencing it. He experienced it firsthand. I think about the, the book of Acts, right? In those first several chapters, right? In chapter like three, he and John are coming into the courtyard of the temple. And there's a beggar sitting there and they heal him and they go in like leaping and dancing and shouting and singing with praise. And then Peter and John start to teach in the name of Jesus and they get arrested. Right? They, get, they, get, they get in trouble. And here they stand before the, the ruling council, right? And they, they eventually, you know, beat them a little bit and then leave them to go. But I, I love when they re, rejoin the other believers 
Do you know what they do in chapter, in chapter 3 and 4? In chapter 4, they join the other believers and they pray. And they pray these words. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Right? Because they said, hey, don't, don't speak the name of Jesus or else something bad will happen to you. Right? They say, Lord, consider their threats and embolden us to preach, to speak the words with great boldness. Right? The threats are real. The pain and the suffering's real. But then that prayer isn't to eliminate it. They're like, hey, just remember the threats that we live amongst, but give us boldness to preach. Then you turn the next page in your Bible and you come into Acts chapter 5. And now they, they're, they're preaching the name of Jesus and they all get thrown in jail. All of the apostles. And they're getting, they're getting beaten and they're being, um, right, um, beaten. And they're suffering for the name of Jesus. But this one guy stands up and says, hey, remember there were the, uh, these other couple guys who thought they were something and they raised up a band. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. They raised up a band of people to try something out and it fell apart because it was, came from human origin. But I said, so if it's of human of origin, don't worry, it'll just fizzle. But it's of, if it's of God, then we end up fighting against God. So he said, hey, just let them go and do their thing. And if it's of human origin, eh, it'll all blow away. But if it's of God, we will find ourselves fighting against God. And then it says this. His speech, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what was their reaction? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name, for the name of Jesus. They were arrested and flogged, beaten, suffering. And their attitude upon release wasn't mad, it wasn't anger, it wasn't retribution. How do we get them back? Prove them wrong. It was joy. They counted themselves worthy of suffering for the sake of the name. But don't just take Peter's words for it. There's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says it this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Right? You start with these trials and let them work in and through your lives because it produces something that is godly. Let it finish its work. Don't take a shortcut. Stand up under the suffering because God will give you strength. Right? And I know it's counterintuitive. And it's counterintuitive to me to put joy and suffering together. But if we see it as part of a process, if we see it about as part of God's process, then in my mind at least it starts to make a little bit more sense. But don't take James' word for it. Paul says it this way. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 
if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Right? Christ suffered. And he said, you will share in my suffering, but believe me, you will also share in my glory, and my glory outweighs the suffering. That's what Paul is saying here. He's writing this to the Romans. And earlier in his letter in chapter 5, he said, see uh, Romans chapter 5, he says this, which sounds almost identical to what James was saying. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So there's this process of refinement, of maturing, of bringing to wholeness that starts with the key ingredient of suffering. And I know that's an ingredient we would love to not have in the recipe. But it is there throughout Scripture. And Paul writes it here now twice. But again, don't just take his words for what he's saying. Paul knew what he was writing. Then in Acts chapter 16, in Philippi, Right? They, he comes into Philippi with Silas, and, and, and there's this strange scenario. Right? They see and they meet this gal that's um, possessed by a demon, and these people, these handlers, are using her to make money because she can tell the future as a fortune teller. But they see value in this person who, who needs to be redeemed, and so they cast the demon out of her. And then for the people, hey, there goes our money-making scheme. So they're mad. So what do they do? They turn that anger on these representatives of Jesus, Paul and Silas. And how do they treat him? Well, Paul says this, right? After they had been flogged, or, or Luke writes this about the scenario. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown in prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet to the stocks, and left them there. Right? And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Are you kidding me? Here they, they were stripped and beaten and flogged and suffering and pain and hardship, jailed and chained. And their natural inclination is to sing a hymn and pray to God? As I thought about that, I'm like, no, wouldn't that be the most opportune time to write the top hit, like, blues song ever? Like, bust out the harmonica and just sing the blues. Right? Break out the guitar and just play, like, every minor note there is. 
or turn it into the, that top country song that's next to be written. Like, right, my life stinks. This has happened. Woe is me. My girlfriend left me. Doesn't that seem more like human nature? But after what they had went through, they weren't singing the blues and they weren't writing some crazy country song. They were singing hymns to God. That in the midst of their pain and their struggle, they were going to worship and the word. They were praying. They were singing hymns that probably were just rich and dripping in Scripture. So when, yes, difficult times come, I look at what the masters have done. And I try and emulate them. Which was my opening encouragement to us. That in the midst of all of these difficult times, we keep coming back to the word of God and worship. In the context of other people watching us. So they may know God. And we go back to our, our letter. This letter from Peter. This next section here, he's going to give uh, two very similar sounding um, pronouncements with something radically different in the middle. He says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Right? So earlier he had spoken about a future glory that is to come. But he says, but even in the midst of your suffering, there, the Spirit is upon you. You're not alone. He rests with you. He empowers you. He walks with you. And you're blessed. There's a, a, a temporal blessing that encourages us to keep going the distance. And that's what he's saying here. When you're insulted. You know, in the culture that Peter is writing us, the, the name of the person meant everything. And this was a radically um, uh, deep uh, culture that was steeped in shame and honor and all of those things that when your name was dragged through the mud, it was your character. It was who you are. It would literally bring you down a number of pegs and you would be lower in the social order than you were based on somebody's slander against you. And so he's saying if you're insulted, if people want to drag your name through the mud like they did Jesus, you're blessed. You're not knocked down a rung in any pecking order. It actually proves you are a part of the kingdom of God. And we have to persevere through that. So he says if you're insulted, be insulted for the right things. Right? If you're going through hardship and suffering, it's for the right things because he says, if you suffer, it should not be like a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, right? Somebody who's sticking their nose in their, in their neighbor's business where it doesn't belong. So people like that, they deserve, they do deserve to suffer. But you who bear my name, we, we, we don't do this. Right? Think back to what Ray preached last week of what the characteristic and the action and the, the way that believers are to be, li to be living. Right? We love one another. We practice hospitality without grumbling. 
We administer God's grace in its various forms in how we speak and how we act and live. We don't engage as the world engages. No, because we've been elect out of that. And that's a whole different type of suffering. Because that type of a lifestyle of which maybe some of us used to live before we were plucked out, before we were chosen out, redeemed, changed, infused with the Holy Spirit by people who continue, who reject the name of Jesus and continue to live this way. Suffering is due them. They, that is what they deserve. He says, but, but you who bear my name, <laughs> we, don't, we don't live like that. But he goes back again. However, if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christ follower, right? When it was said in, in that first century, like Christian was a derogatory term that people would throw on them. He says, hey, if we suffer in this way, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. Right? It's that same illustration. It's, it's the name on the front of the jersey. And, and don't be ashamed. Right? And, I, and again, I think about that. I have baseball season starting back up, right? If I'm a Giants fan and I'm on vacation in L.A., and I go to a Dodger-Giants game in L.A., and I wear my Giants jersey. First of all, expect what is about to come. But if that's my family, and I'm in a hostile environment, I'm not going to be ashamed. I won't be ashamed. We as Christ followers— who have been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness into the Son in whom God loves, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whereas ambassadors, we represent the name without shame, without fear, without remorse. We need to step into owning that name that has been put upon us as co-heirs with Christ for the kingdom. And we live in exile in a hostile world. And we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of the gospel that has the power of salvation for those who believe. As God takes any right shame we should have and erases it on the cross— and gives us a new identity for the purpose he has in store for us. And it may and it will come with opposition and suffering. But it shouldn't come with shame. You know, I'm, I'm proud to represent. I'm proud to represent Jesus, even if it means going against the tide. You see, just like those other writers who wrote and had also gone through it, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, the apostle, Paul, the apostle, Silas. I know what that's like. You see, when I was coming out of my freshman year into my sophomore year, I don't know what it was, but all my friends I grew up with on the street playing baseball and football and riding bikes and going everywhere, getting ice cream and 7-Eleven Slurpees and everything. 
Somehow it was that year that they decided to, um, to graduate from Slurpees to drugs, to drinking, to things that went along with that. And that just wasn't who I was. I loved my friends, but now they're, they're moving into this other realm that I, I, I didn't want to participate in. So I would go with them and hang out with them at so-and-so's house or whatever, but I wouldn't engage in what they were doing. And it didn't take long for them to turn on me. They're like, hey, you know, take a hit, take a drink, take a line, eat a shroom, do all these things. And, and I had convictions based on the name that, that I was proclaiming, that I, I loved them, but I didn't want to participate. And so these friends that I had grown up with then just turned on me, and I was persona non grata to them. I didn't exist. I wasn't welcome. And going into my sophomore year, we changed schools from, from ninth grade to 10th grade at San Jose Unified back then, I'm in a brand new school with all these familiar people that I knew but were no longer connected with, and I was alone. I was alone in a new place without friends because I decided, or I rather I said, I'm going to stand on my conviction, and I paid a price. I'll tell you, that is one of the darkest, hardest years of my life. I struggled with depression and, and loneliness, walking to and from school by myself. There were times that, that I thought, is life even worth living? I was 16 years old. I was considering throwing it all away because the, the suffering was real. And it hit a 16-year-old kid who loves his friends in the hardest place. But yet. That was what I faced. And I had to, to take the next step of that conviction and walk that road physically alone, but with the Spirit of God making sure I didn't do something stupid that saw me get to my junior year. And by the grace of God and grandparents who helped pay the bill because we didn't have the money to go to a private Christian school where I met friends that I'm still in community with today. And I'll be honest with you, there, were, there weren't many times I rejoiced that sophomore year. There were many a times I cried. Quite honestly, I didn't worship as much as I should. I was in my room with my Walkman, <laughs> listening to the music of the day, trying to find a friend, listening to a voice I could relate to. But yet God still spoke even louder than the words of those songs, and he saw me through. And Peter goes on, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
right? This judgment, this fiery ordeal that God allows in his providence and in his sovereignty to come upon us. It refines us. It strengthens us, right? And it removes the impurities still in our lives that that don't belong there so that we can be made holy and right before a holy and righteous God. And that's what he does within the family. But he says, you, we need to get, we need a little bit more working out, right? We need to keep doing some hard work. We, I need to let you go through this to refine you. That's how he treats the family of God. But what about the unbelievers still? They face a radical different judgment. You see, Paul would say it this way. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world, right? We're we're being refined. We're being retrained. We're being worked with by the ultimate personal trainer, the Holy Spirit. So that that refinement, we become 100% pure silver, gold, holy, unblemished as we are and we're being made. But the world, the world that rejects, the world that hated Jesus because they rejected his word and his deed, the same thing that's coming through Peter, that same world, that system, those people that are in opposition because of unbelief stand a different judgment. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Endure hardship as discipline. For God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father. And everyone undergoes discipline. Then you are not legitimate, not true sons of God and daughters of all. Like if you don't, right? If you're not disciplined, rather. And everyone undergoes discipline. But if you're not disciplined, then you're illegitimate children. And the writer goes on to say that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. No kidding. It's hard. It's painful. It's a struggle. It costs. But in the moment, right? This moment. In the perspective of eternity, it's in the moment. At the present time. But later in the perspective of that same scope of time later. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained or judged in it. Refined. Who've been built up, made whole. Right? In the whole perspective, it's the same thing. That when we go through the difficulties and the suffering, which are hard and momentary, there is a joy. There's a glory that comes that will far outweigh The moment, because the glory that is to come is forever. And this moment is as hard as it is, is fleeting and doesn't even compare in perspective. And Peter goes on, and if it's hard, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? Right now, he's quoting from, from um, the Proverbs the same thing he just said. Right? I don't know if he said that because he said, hey, maybe you need affirmation of another person who is wise in Solomon. So if you don't want to believe what I'm writing, believe what Solomon wrote. But the righteous, 
right, as we live in a world amongst the unrighteous, it's still to be done with hope so that, so that they may see. Peter wrote that. That when they slander you, may they be ashamed of their slander when they see how you live. Which is so radically different and counterintuitive to this world because you live with love. You live with grace. You act in it. You don't just say it. You back up your words with deed. You, you offer hospitality, hospitality without grumbling. Who does that? Especially to people who are pouring it on and, and, and making you suffer. You're treating them that way. Like, what gives? Because later on, what do you write in the letter? Above all, set your heart first and foremost on Jesus. And then let people ask for the hope that resides in you because you live so different. In the midst of suffering, you still hold on to what is true and right and gracious and loving and pure and admirable. Those things that are indicative of the name of Jesus and the character of Jesus who was God in the flesh and reflects him. And yes, we might suffer. It will be hard. And sadly, I think it's momentarily hard for us, but those who unbelieve will be eternally hard. <laughs> That's why in Second Peter, he would write, that's why God is patient and not coming back because he wants all people to repent and come to him. That's the heart of God. And they see the heart of God through the people of God who live out the purpose of God in a hostile world and stand up under the suffering and hardship that does come our way. So that maybe, maybe those in our inner circle who have judged us will come around and question a question from a, hey, I want to understand. So that's how Peter ends it in verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will, it's his sovereign will that, that we go through difficult times. That we should commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. And that's how Peter ends this part of the letter. And he'll, he'll finish, and we'll look at that next week. But he says, so then, as a result of all of this, those who suffer according to God's will. You're like, really, God, this was your will? So, well, it was the will for my son, and my son was myself. So if I went through it, and the 12, which became the 11, then plus Paul, and so on and so on. If I had that expectation for them and they lived it out, and they wrote a letter to the people that they were leaving as the next people, who leave it for the next people, who instruct the next people, who encourage the next people, that lands on our plate. Yeah. I, I, I'm to skirt the difficulties that my Savior crawled to a cross, to a, up a hill, bearing a load. The student is not above the teacher.
continue to do good so that people, your inner circle, your family, your friends, your coworkers, they see something different. And they would wonder, what is that? And they would ask. And we would tell them. Because we've been showing them. Because we've seen it. God, thank you. Thank you that you, you modeled Jesus, the very heart of God. That uh, seems like a paradox, but it includes suffering that is a family trait. God, embolden us, strengthen us to live that out. God, remind us we don't do it alone. Your spirit who resides in us walks with us. Then in addition to that, there is this community of believers, this specific community called Cedars that walks through suffering, that deals with adversity, with the graciousness and the tenacity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the sake of his kingdom. Even when it's counterintuitive and doesn't make sense and goes against what we would will, but not my will, but yours be done. Amen. That same will of God, that same suffering that on that night he was betrayed, would go in a garden. And, and, I, and I hear that prayer, the prayers of Jesus, right? Is there some other way? He knew the hardship, the suffering, the flogging, the crucifixion, crucifixion that was to come. He knew how bad and cruel the Romans could be. They were experts in making you suffer on a cross. And he had a frank discussion. God, my father, seriously, is, this, is there no other way? Is there no other option, no other cup? And he said, no, you know what's in the cup. And so he went. He went because he knew like a mother giving birth, the, the pain the pain. The pain that would come that as they, as they would rip the flesh from his body, that as he, offer, he would offer up his body, right? Beaten and broken, scourged, torn out, nailed on a cross for us. And that as often as we eat, of the bread, we remember. We anticipate him coming back. The future glory that is to come, but it serves as a reminder that the name comes with a price. And it wasn't just his body that he gave up, right? It was the, the cup. His blood. The new covenant poured out for you and for me. And so now as we move into this time of communion, right, if you have elements there, we remember. We remember the price 
paid for the name and the co-heirship. <laughs> That's a word. The ability that we can be heirs to the kingdom. Children of God. Living stones, as Peter would say. A holy priesthood. The people of God. That he suffered. He was obedient for your sake and mine and for those who are yet to believe. Take these moments now as you take communion at home and then we're going to turn that corner and we're going to worship because we believe and we follow a God who is worthy to worship regardless of our circumstances in the perspective of eternity. The glory outweighs the pain and suffering. Go ahead and take your communion. And God bless you.